Good morning. Good to be here with you guys in person. And uh, some of the people uh, in the room have already told me that I look so much smaller in person than, than, <laughs> than I do on the screen. So let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study and celebrate what you have done for us. We ask that you will uh, send your spirit to enlighten our minds, uh, fulfill uh, your purpose in our lives, that we can uh, fulfill what you've called us to do and lighten the world with, with your end-time message. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing Lesson 13 in the quarterly on death, dying, the future hope, and the title is The Judging Process. And what comes to mind when you hear the title? The Judging Process. Does it bring you comfort? No. No. You used to scare me. Do you, what, and, 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 of course, what's the, the, the question we have to ask? What, uh, what law lens? What law lens are we looking through? So keep that in mind. Let's look at our first paragraph. First paragraph says, If Scripture is clear about one thing, it is the reality of judgment. God will judge the world. The texts, both in the Old Testament and New, are numerous and without ambiguity. The justice so lacking here and now, will one day come. What do you think about that? What, is it, what do you think the, the message is that they're trying for us to understand from this? We will get our revenge. We're going to get our ends, huh? Yeah. So, what is the purpose of God's judgment? To destroy sin. Diagnosis. To destroy sin. Somebody said, to, from this paragraph, what's the purpose? Retribution. Well, they, they use the word justice. The, 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 to provide justice is what the lesson says. Then what does, what does God's judgment actually do? Set right. Does God's judgment determine guilt and innocence? No. That's the implication. Diagnosis. Does God's judgment determine reward and punishment? Isn't that how you typically hear judgment? You go before the judge, the evidence, the accusations, the defense, and the judge renders a ruling. Determination. You're guilty or innocent. Of course, not based on your works, based on whether you've accepted the right payment or not. But it's a deter. This is how it normally. This was all based on human law. Keep these questions in mind as we go through. Second paragraph in the lesson says, the Bible says that God has perfect knowledge and knows everything, including our most secret intentions. We can hide from everyone and everything else, but nothing is hidden from God. Do you believe this is true? I, I believe it's true also. But what about the idea from previous study guides? And this is, from, uh, this is from a 2014 study guide on the book of James, Lesson 12, on Thursday's lesson, says the following. Saving souls from death is possible only through covering of sins by applying the gospel to our lives. Uh, or this is out of the Christ and his law, Lesson 7. Sunday's lesson is, no matter how bad sin is, God's grace is sufficient to cover it for those who claim his promises by faith. Does God know everything? Yes. Nothing is hidden from him? He's yes. covering it from us. Or when the Bible says in Isaiah, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Or in Hebrews 8.12, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Does this mean that at some point, some things become hidden from God? No. 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 Or God has some selective memory problems? No. What about the idea taught that when you accept Jesus as your Savior, he covers you with the robe of his righteousness and the Father looks at you, he cannot see your sins. Your sins are now covered by the robe, are your sins being hidden from God? What about the idea that you're covered by the blood or washed in the blood or the blood has been applied to your record books and and in the records of heaven there, they go beforehand into judgment and are, are taken out of the record and therefore there is no record of sins of the righteous. Are they being hidden? No. Are they being covered? Have you ever heard these ideas taught before? Yes. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. Nothing is hidden from God, including the future. God to God, reality, past, present, and future are alike because God lives outside of time. He created time. He governs time. No, I agree, nothing is hidden. But then what's it mean that he remembers our sins no more? If you had a, a child who was sick and dying from a terminal condition, and you love your child, and you also have a remedy that will cure your child, what do those elements together require you to pay attention to? Your child's dying from a terminal condition, you love your child, and you have a remedy. What must you focus on with all those things being true? Healing your child. The sickness in your child. The application of the remedy to put the disease or the cancer into remission. But once your child's completely well, there's no more symptoms. They're fully healthy. The disease is gone. It's eradicated. It's erased. It's wiped out of them. And they come to you and say, Mommy, I'm so sorry that when I was sick, I vomited on your shoes. (laughs) What do you say? It's forgotten. It doesn't come up. It's not relevant, is it? No, it's not about memory. It's about relevance for purpose and attention. That's what the wiping off the books. That's exactly right. And that's what it means to blot out our sins or our transgressions. It's blotting them out of the heart, mind, and character of the sinner, just like a doctor blots out the cancerous cells with their radiation knife. (laughs) Okay? Eliminates them. Doesn't eliminate the patient. Eliminates the disease. Wipes them out from where they operate. And sin doesn't happen in books. Sin happens in living souls. And that's where God is working to eradicate it. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph states, for many the idea of judgment means condemnation. And you can already know why that is, because they read the, the issue through the human law lens, being judged. But for many, the idea of judgment means condemnation. And though that's part of the process, we mustn't forget that the idea of judgment has a positive side, in that judgment also involves the vindication of the righteous. Actually, the book of Daniel refers to the end-time judgment, quote, in favor of the saints of the Most High, end quote, uh, Daniel 7.22, New King James Version. God's judgment includes both a principle found in the Old Testament text, then here in heaven, and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing on his head his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. 1 Kings 8.32. The lesson quotes the New King James Version of Daniel 7.22 that the Ancient of Days came and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. But here's some other versions. This is the New Revised Standard Version. See if, if you hear them the same. Judgment was made in favor of the saints, New King James Version. Here's the New Revised Standard. Until the Ancient of Days came, then judgment was given to the Holy Ones of the Most High. And the time arrived when the Holy Ones gained possession of the kingdom. Or... English Standard Version. Until the ancient days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. Or King James Version, the original. Until the ancient days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. Now, do you hear judgment in favor of the same way you hear as judgment given to? The Hebrew, and I won't go into all the Hebrew, but the Hebrew word, if you look up in the lexicons, is translated as give 21 times given twice, delivered once, laid once, paid once, prolonged once. So the predominant meaning of the word is actually to give, to give somebody something, to give it to them. That's what the word means. So judgment was given. God, ancient days came and gave judgment to his saints. Not pronounced in a legal way, but gave it to. If you're one of his saints, the time came, God gave you judgment. What's the core problem in the great controversy? The central, foundational, breach or break issue in the great controversy. There's multiple ways to say the same thing. You're all saying the same thing. 
breach of trust in God. God's, uh, an allegation against God's law that undermined our confidence in God. God's character, uh, God's ways, methods, principles. It's all the same. God was the one accused. Trust in God was broken. Fear and selfishness were instilled. The central issue in the war has always been God's trustworthiness, the truth about God. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, one of our favorite texts. Though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. And notice what we demolish. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets us up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. The central issue in the war has always been the knowledge or truth of God. Life eternal, they might know you, the only true God. Jesus came and said, um, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. This has been the central issue. Paul then wrote in Romans 3, verse 4. I'm going to read it just out of the New English translation, but you can check your other translations. Let God be proven true and every human being shown up as a liar, shown up as a liar, just as it is written, so that you will be justified in your words and will prevail when you are judged. If someone lies about you and you're innocent of the lies, but people you care about are believing the lies and therefore they don't want to hang out with you anymore, if you want to restore that relationship, what, who's on trial? Aren't you being tried in their mind? Don't they have to make a judgment? And then you reveal truth. The truth exposes the lies. And hopefully your relationships are restored or reconciled because the truth has set the people who are believing lies free and they can trust you again. This is the issue. God has been lied about in heaven. God was lied about in even. God has been lied about throughout human history. Satan is the father of lies. Jesus said, you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And you have to make a judgment. And so what is, what is God revealing to Daniel in Daniel 7.22? A time in human history is going to come, and where we stand now, has come, in which judgment or discernment is given to the people of God so they can rightly discern the issues, the allegations, the evidences, and make a determination that, in fact, God is not like Satan is alleged. God is trustworthy, and we judge him rightly. And there's an end-time message that says this. Another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel, the eternal good news, the good news that's been good in eternity past and good in eternity future, and that good news is always about God, the good news about God, the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, every nation, tribe, language, and people who said, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Not the hour and he sits as a judicial magistrate to determine guilt and innocence on people, but the hour in human history where Romans 3, 4, God made you win your, course, when you win your case when you were being judged. The hour has come for people to make the right judgment about God and stop judging him to be an imperial Roman dictator who makes up rules and uses his power to threaten you for breaking his rules and ultimately the source of inflicted pain and suffering and death. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. It's a call back to worship the creator whose laws are the laws that govern reality, not imposed rules like sinners make up. That's what this call is for. But why wait till this time in human history? Why is this message, both in Daniel, there's like a time coming when the Ancient of Days takes a seat and judgment is given to the saints and a time is going to come when the eternal gospel is to go forward and people are to make this judgment right about God? Why wait? Individuals have been making these judgments through all human history. Enoch clearly had to make it. You find it through history where people are, are having to decide to trust God or, and, or bow to an idol. You find this all through history. So, so what's, this, what's different about this? This is not speaking exclusively of individual salvation. This is speaking of bringing the world's sin problem to closure on a global basis. The world is being called. The world is settling into two camps. The wine of Babylon are the ideas 
of an imperial dictator, God, and his imposed laws that infect our minds and make us stuporous, make us confused, cause us to suspend reason because you actually can't reason and believe God is a God of love. And if you don't love him, he'll torture and kill you. You can't believe that. You can't think. I mean, you can believe it, but you can't reason and still hold those two because they're incongruent. It's not possible to get love from somebody by threatening to kill them if they don't love you. The act of threatening to kill somebody if they don't love you incites rebellion and destroys love. Love requires liberty. And so this idea of a, of a, of a rule-making God who, who then uses his power to inflict punishment on rule-breakers at the same time saying, I'm only doing this because I love you and I want you to love me back, requires you to turn off your reasoning, but you can't think, you can't reason. It makes you stuporous. It makes you superstitious. It makes you willing to believe things based on blind faith, faith without evidence. Now, who has no evidence in the great controversy? Satan has no evidence. And so he makes this very theological, very appealing, very spiritual. Yeah, if you, if you have faith, you don't ask questions, you just believe. Thus, the final message is about God's character and government of truth, love, and liberty. His design laws, how he's constructed things to work. We reject that imperial Roman fraud that has infected Christianity and called people out of that fallen system of imposed rules with a punishing God who inflicts torment and pain that they call justice. Waiting. The good news of judgment is that one day God will bring everyone to justice. He'll make them pay. That view of God is pagan. It's a lie. It destroys hearts and minds. It incites rebellion. It seems so effective, though. Yes. Yes, it does. She said it seems effective. Why? Why does it seem effective? Fear. Fear. But why? why? Okay, fear. Why is fear so effective? You don't think fear is effective? Look what happened in COVID. Yeah. <laughs> fear is hugely effective on this planet. Fear for what, though? People. What's it effective for? What's it, what's it effective for? People down. But, what's, but it's effective for what, though? It's effective for what? You're right. Fear shuts people down. But what's it, what's it effective? Control. Control. So can, with, with fear, can you get people to behaviorally comply if you give enough fear? Yes. Yes. If the threat is significant enough, do this or else. You can control people through fear. Can you get love by making people more afraid of you? Can you get loyalty by making people? Can you get friendship by making people more? Can you get trust by making people? So you're right. In this world of sin where selfishness abounds and people are afraid and they're self-centered, what do they want? They want to feel safe. And how can they feel safe? There's actually only two ways to have a safe environment. God's way in which every person in your environment loves you more than they love themselves, and they would die than take an action that would harm you. Every person is that way. And they all go out of their way to help everybody. This is heaven. This is the new earth. It's a safe environment. You don't have to have police on the corner to protect you. You don't have to have alarms on your house. You don't have to pack a gun to go to church. That's one way. There's another way, though, as you reject God and love is being squashed out of the heart, fear rises and people become more selfish and more insecure and they want to feel safe. And so how can we feel safe if we don't actually have love for each other and we're actually afraid of each other? How can we feel safe? More law, more power, more authority, more coercion, more control. Look at what happens in China. Yeah. I can tell you, um, oh, I don't mean how, how many years ago it was now. It was uh, 15 years ago or so. Uh, Christy and I were in China. And we went to multiple cities in China. And we had a very unique experience there as we walked around the streets of China. We felt safer walking in China than we did walking in New York City. Yeah. <laughs> we did. We felt extremely safe walking around there. 
They had soldiers in their green uniforms and red stars everywhere. Everywhere. There were, and we had no fear of anybody attacking us or mugging us. And in fact, there was one place where um, Pastor Nelson, Dwight, Dwight Nelson and his wife were with us. And, and, and his wife and, and Christy, there was these two people that, that were following us. We, they were here, they were there, they were in another place. And, and, and they were following and they were just like oogling our wives. So we just finally, <laughs> we just finally went up to one of those guys in green with a red star and said, these guys... They keep, it's been like the last three hours they've been following us and watching our wives. Blew a whistle. About 12 guys came, grabbed those guys. They were gone. We never saw them again. I don't know what happened to them. But we felt safe. Is that what heaven's going to be like? God's got angels with flaming swords on every corner. And if you feel safe, you go to an angel. Off to hell they go. (laughs) So you're right. It works well in this world. But it doesn't work to get what God wants. And God wants loving, trusting, loyal, faithful friends. Friends that not only trust him. Get your mind around what I'm about to say now. Friends that he can trust. Like he trusted Job perfect and righteous in all his ways. No one on the earth like him. Bible perfection is not about sinlessness. Job wasn't sinless. He still needed Jesus as a savior. But Job had come to a point in his relationship with God that he trusted God completely and nothing could cause him to break trust with God. That's what God wants. You can't get that with with threats and, and fear. Any more that you can get that from your spouse by telling your spouse, I've done all this, bought you these great Christmas presents and birthday presents and took you on a couple really expensive trips. But if you stop loving me tonight while you're sleeping, I'm pouring gas on you and lighting you on fire. (laughs) You won't get more love and trust. (laughs) So judgment is given to the saints. Why wait to this time in history? Because there was a counterattack. I think I'm going to get out of order in my notes, but there was a counterattack. Paul references it in Thessalonians. After Jesus came, after Jesus revealed the truth, after Jesus won the victory of the cross, after Jesus ascended, after the first fruits were resurrected and taken to heaven with him, as the gospel is starting to spread, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians that the end is not going to come until the man of sin, the man of lawlessness. In fact, I probably need to find that because I want to read that exactly. Here it is. Yeah, just a little bit ahead. 2 Thessalonians um, chapter, was it chapter? I didn't put the chapter down. My bad. But it's verses 3 and 4. He said, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for, the, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself of everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Think this through. This is about 65 A.D., Jesus has already won his victory on the earth. He's already resurrected. He's already ascended into heaven. And Paul says the man of lawlessness is coming who will set himself up in God's temple. Is he talking the temple in heaven? He's going to ride up in there, knock Jesus off his throne and start reigning in heaven? (laughs) It's not going to happen. This is the spirit temple. This is the temple where God is supposed to dwell by his spirit. And this man of sin is coming. This man of lawlessness is coming and he's going to reign in this temple. How is he going to do that? This is the counterattack. This is the fraud. This is the Roman infection. This is Christianity becoming infected with the idea that God's law functions like human law, made up rules by a powerful magistrate who then uses power to judicially examine the records and uses power to punish rule breakers. And therefore, entire theologies are created on the idea that we need to do something to pay the God so he won't harm us. That's Roman, based on Roman law. Not, not God's law. And the whole world has wondered after this system, drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak, the, the wine of Babylon, and the whole world believes. Whether they believe in God or not, the whole world believes this is how God runs his universe. And this is why many reject God, because they don't like it. They don't like this view. And this is why the Bible describes this man of sin as the man of lawlessness. 
because he sets aside the design laws of God and substitute human imposed laws. And the only outcome from doing away with the design laws is what the Bible describes. He's doomed to destruction. If you tie a plastic bag over your head and break the law of respiration, you are doomed to death. It's not a legal sentence. And that's what the Bible is describing here. Everybody who go down the imperial law model and worship that God are doomed. And every branch of Christianity has been infected with this perversion of law and this perversion of justice and judgment. With, uh, with the judgment being a judicial proceeding, Satan is the accuser, Jesus is our defense attorney, Father is the judge looking at evidence, grants rewards and punishments based on whether we've accepted the right blood payments and had it applied. And of course, that requires we have perfect memory and, re- and, and have confessed and asked forgiveness and the blood payment of every sin we've ever committed so Jesus can apply it to the count properly. So with all this, this is why what we read about in Daniel, what we read about in the three angels. Before the second coming, God sends a message that contains the eternal good news about him as our creator, calls us to worship him who made the heavens, reject the Roman view of law, come back to judge him to be as Jesus revealed him to be. The hour of his judgment has come. And, and as you look at the idea of judgment in scripture, there are five different types of judgments in scripture. There's the human type of judgment made on human law on which human governments operate, which are judicial and external, in which an external magistrate makes a judgment or determination of guilt and innocence and, inf- and, inf- and invokes or inflicts either rewards or punishments. You see this type of judgment in the Sanhedrin and Pilate judging and punishing Christ. It has nothing to do with objective reality. It has nothing to do with actual guilt or innocence. It has to do with external power and authority being used. And even in our courts today, you know all the time, innocent people get convicted and guilty people get set free. All the time. It is not actually based on guilt and innocence. It's based on who can manipulate the artificial made-up rules most effectively to get the outcome they want in the system. That's human law. Every human government. It's not God's law, and it's not God's type of judgment. The first judgment is the one we just talked about, which is, and it it began in heaven when the angels had to make a judgment to trust God or not trust God when Lucifer lied. In Eden, when the serpent lied, they had to make a judgment, trust God or distrust God. All through the scriptures, you find uh, when Baal worship came and and at Mount Carmel, uh, who are you going to believe? if, God, if, if Baal is God, worship him. If Yahweh is God, worship him. They had to make a judgment. Joshua called people to make the same judgment. As for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. You find this judgment of whether we find God trustworthy or not. This is the first biblical or God-like judgment. It's the judgment of, of his intelligent beings making a judgment about whether they will open their heart to trust him or not. That's the first judgment in, in the plan of salvation for us. The second judgment, if we understand design law, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they did not create a legal problem. They created a lethal problem. They changed themselves. Adam and Eve, after their sin, were not faithful, loyal, true, righteous, holy beings who simply had a legal problem in, with the heavenly court system. They actually were changed from holy, righteous, faithful, trustworthy beings to beings filled with fear and selfishness who no longer operated in harmony with God's designs for life. And you see this in their behavior instantly as they run and hide, as Adam uh, throws Eve under the bus and blames her, takes no responsibility, and so forth. They changed their state of being and brought upon humanity a terminal sin condition, and every human being since then is born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Psalms 51, 5. We're born with a condition we did not choose. We didn't choose the condition. HIV-infected man, HIV-infected woman get together and have a baby born HIV-infected. What did the baby do wrong? Nothing. Nothing, but the baby has a condition. And if you don't treat the condition, they are symptoms and death. We have a condition. If we don't get treatment, we have symptoms, we call those sins, and it results in death. But God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son to partake of the condition for the purpose of overcoming and destroying the condition and healing the species. Genesis 3.15, as soon as Adam is sinned, Messiah is promised. He's coming to crush the serpent's head to overcome the condition. The entire Old Testament record is that battle. The Old Testament record is Jesus, God, working to bring about the coming Messiah to overcome the sin problem and heal the species, and Satan working to obstruct the plan. Yes? I think a better, more nuanced understanding of what happened to Adam and Eve at the fall is they both blamed God. Eve blamed God vicariously through the serpent. It was that serpent you made. Sure. And Adam blamed God vicariously through Eve. That's true. It was that woman you gave me. That's right. But after they changed themselves. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. And and it wasn't necessarily a blaming of Eve or blaming of the serpent. It was a blaming of God, which, which is a... And, and you a see much this more question. wonderful understanding of how what sin does, and 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 it comes up frequently. Well, why did God put the tree in the garden? You're right. Mm-hmm. It's God's fault. If He'd put the tree in the garden, then they wouldn't have sinned. Yeah. Any, anybody ever had that question? Yeah. It's, an, it's another form of, tr- of putting the blame. But under, it's because design law is not understood. That the that question that questions why God put the tree in the garden, and and doubts God's goodness is coming through human law model. There's a rule he made up, and he, and he, and he put bait there to, to, to trip him up. When you understand design law, then you understand what God wants. God wants maturity. He wants loyal, faithful, true, trustworthy friends. And this is the tree of knowledge of good and evil, not cognitive awareness. They were given cognitive awareness when the angels and Jesus warned them of the rebellion and warned them of sin, they were told. But this is, do you know the difference between knowing the mechanics and or the concept of swimming and knowing how to swim? <laughs> yes. Are they the same? No. 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 They were told the concepts of sin by the angels and by God and warned. But this is the tree of knowledge of good or evil. They would choose what they would know. Will they know in their being loyalty, faithful, trust of God and trustworthiness, maturity and development of of Christ-like character because they exercise their ability to discern the issues and choose the good and reject the lie, they will know the good. But if they choose the lie, then they choose the evil and they know evil in their being, in their heart, their mind, and character. It's what they would choose to know. And the only way for God to get what he wants, now he could have certainly not put the tree there, but then what would they be? They would be programmed robots of some kind. It would be all mechanical, be puppets of some sort. The only way for them to be free and to be faithful, loyal, true, mature is for them to have an opportunity to weigh the issues, come to the conclusion, and choose what they would know in their character. Would they know Christ-likeness or would they know rebellion? So it was for their maturity, not for their fall. That's design law view of this kind of stuff. So you're right. I think exactly right. But that idea still is, it makes its way through because we've accepted the human law model. So first judgment, our judgment of God. Second judgment, so looking down the whole Old Testament history is God working to bring Messiah, Satan working to oppose Messiah. And then we see God makes various judgments through history. One of them is in Genesis 6. The flood. What's going on? Genesis 3, God promises Messiah. Humankind have a terminal sin condition. Without Jesus, can any human being be saved? No. No. So Messiah is required. Do you think Satan, after God pronounces in Genesis 3 that Messiah is coming to crush him? He goes on vacation? (laughs) He gets busy working against the plan. How can he stop the plan? If he can get every single human being to harden permanently against God, there's no avenue for Messiah to be born. God will not force a woman against her will to become the mother of Jesus. That would be divine rape, and he won't do that. And he will not have baby Jesus born to a woman like Jezebel, completely corrupt in character. He needed a righteous, willing woman to be the mother of Jesus. And so if Satan can get every person to harden the heart, then, then he shut down the plan of salvation. You say, yeah, but that's really unrealistic. I mean, come on. Uh, there's, there's millions, billions of people, uh, everybody. Well, according to Scripture in Genesis 6, at the time of the flood, there was 
only one righteous man left on the earth. If we believe scripture, the avenue through which God can save this species human had narrowed down to one man and his family. Everyone else was beyond reach. And so God made a judgment, a therapeutic evaluation or diagnosis of the circumstances, and he made a therapeutic judgment of what's needed to remedy the circumstance. He needed to act to keep open avenue for Messiah. This was not a judicial act. It was not an infliction of punishment. It was the minimum action. Look how long he waited, how patient he waited, all the way till there's only one before he acted. And he decided he must protect the one man and his family still loyal so that Messiah could come and the human species could be saved. And so God set them flood, not as a legal punishment, but as a therapeutic intervention for all humanity. For those who died before the flood, they needed Jesus. For those who died after the flood, we need Jesus. And for those who died in the flood. Noah preached. How, how could it be for those who died in the flood? Because Noah preached for 120 years. Warning of the coming flood proclaiming God's grace in providing the ark. And and anyone is free to get on. But none did, but Noah and his family. But then think of this gracious opportunity. As the flood came, the rains came, there's a period of time, whether it's seconds or minutes or hours or days, we're not exactly sure for each individual person, but there is a period of time when rain started falling in the sky. Where people went, "Uh uh-oh, (laughs) <laughs> you think that they were laughing seven days ago at the guy getting locked up on his boat seven days they're laughing they're partying mocking and then the first raindrops fall uh oh and then more rain and it got harder and the storm clouds and 120 years of preaching they had opportunity to reflect and repent. They would be like the thief on the cross who his life of rebellion brought him to a point where he was being executed for it, but he still, before he died in this life, gave his heart to Jesus. His earthly life is still over, but he found salvation, didn't he? These people who are dying in the flood had this opportunity. God provided it for them. It's an act of grace, an act of mercy. And sadly, since I put this idea out there in writing and in, in, in our class, I've heard from around the circle that there are those critics <laughs> who try to impugn what we teach here, founding, finding a quote from one of the founders of our of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, of our church, where she wrote that none that died in the flood found salvation. They all died in rebellion against God. And because of that, the, 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 the critics of our ministry use that to impugn what I just said. And do you recognize that in no way does it impugn what I just said? Because I was not focusing on whether any of the wicked were saved. I was focusing on the character and methods of God and whether God provided opportunity for them, not whether any individual took advantage of the opportunity. That's a second and completely different question. I have no idea whether anyone availed themselves of the evidence of the raining waters and rising floods before they actually drowned and repent. I have no idea of that. But the que- that wasn't the question. The question is, was God's action in bringing the flood judicial, inflicting pain, suffering, and death, or was it therapeutic to save the human species and all benefited from his action? But even their own theology, the critics of ours, contradicts themselves. When you have an imposed law model, you will always have contradictions that impugn your own position. So, for instance, they insist, those who insist that God's law works like human law, 
in that model, when does punishment occur? Before or after judgment? And the judgment in that law model is a future event from the flood. So even in that law model, what God was doing at the flood could not have been punishment for sin because judgment hadn't happened yet. It's contradictory. Worse, was the flood, the people who died in the flood, did they die the, the first death or the second death? First. The sleep death. That's the same death Daniel died. Daniel, you're going to sleep until the resurrection, God told him. Is that the punishment for sin death? No, no. no, it's the second eternal death. So even if they want to say that, what happened to the flood was not punishment for sin because the punishment for sin is eternal death. They do this all the time. Contradiction after contradiction. And obfuscation after obfuscation. You will find that, that people who want to hold this other model will constantly take evidences of sleep death, first death, and equate that to eternal death And they will find places like the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah, other places where God used power to put people asleep and say, therefore, God kills the wicked in the end. That would be like saying an anesthesiologist who puts somebody to sleep and then wakes them up is the same as a serial killer who murders people. It's not the same. God puts people to sleep and he wakes them all up at some point in time. Sometimes he puts people to sleep. So we find God's judgments through history. First judgment, our judgment of God. Second judgment, God's therapeutic judgments of the, of the circumstance and situation to bring the plan of salvation about. And the therapeutic intervention is necessary. But there's another aspect of God's healing therapeutic judgment. His work in the hearts and minds of people, individuals. David understood this and prayed, examine me, O God, know my mind, test me and discover my thoughts. Find out if there is an evil, any evil in me. Guide me in the ways everlasting. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Search me and see the wickedness. We go to God and we ask him to examine us as you would a doctor and make a judgment. What's wrong? And make a judgment. What's needed to fix it? This is another type of therapeutic judgment. Malachi describes the same thing in Malachi 3, 1 through 5, when it says, suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. If you have an Adventist background, that should trigger something in your mind about something. You should be putting pieces together. Temple, and the rest of this thing is about cleansing. Do we have anything in our theology about cleansing temples or sanctuaries or anything like that? This is what Malachi is talking about. Suddenly the Lord you are seeking come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. What do those do? They cleanse, they purify. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And notice what he purifies. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. Does that sound judicial judgment? He's coming near to identify what's dirty or broken or, or defiled so that he can judge what needs to be cleansed and remove the defilement and cleanse it. It's therapeutic. And what is it that's being cleansed? The Levites, the priesthood of believers, those who have accepted Jesus. Those whose spirit temples got infected with the lie he's wanting to cleanse with the truth. This is the judgment of the great heavenly physician, our creator, examining us and diagnosing what's wrong and determining what's best therapeutic uh, intervention to bring to bear in our lives to heal and restore, to write his law in our hearts and minds. This is our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary cleansing the sanctuary. That's what this is. And I'm excited now to announce to you our latest magazine that we are releasing today. Isn't this beautiful? It is The Wedding of Christ to His Bride Preparing the Church for the Second Coming. We have them here. And when class is over, you can get yours and share them. If you're watching online, you can order in groups of one, five, or ten. And if you have a U.S. postal address, we'll ship them at no cost. This will also be up on the uh, digital platform, so you can download a PDF copy, and there will also be a flip book you can read online. But this is the cleansing of the sanctuary message without using Daniel 8.14. You don't need it. 
Do you understand, when you think of Daniel 8.14, and this passage we just read in Malachi, talks about the messenger of the covenant. What is the covenant? Well, you could say the covenant of salvation, right? That's true, it is. What's, the, what's, what's another covenant? Is marriage a covenant? And, and is Jesus described as the bridegroom and the church as the bride and they come into a holy union and Jesus prayed in John 17, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. You and me and me and them, all of us one, at one. At one meant, day of at one meant or day of atonement. The day of cleansing. And if you read in scripture, Paul describes how Christ comes and cleanses his bride, purifies her. And this is the message of scripture that he is purifying his people so that we can come into at one mint with him. You understand, and this, this describes this, but I'll, I'll read one little section in the very beginning of this. And it talks about, I'm going to read a little section about relationships. The wedding is a joyful event in which two hearts united in love, devotion, loyalty, and friendship. And marriage as God designed is not a legal declaration, but an intertwining of hearts, minds, and selves into a greater whole. It is a holy union. Godly marriage brings two intelligent beings into a type of oneness that defies human logic. A oneness in which each individual retains their unique identities, but simultaneously under the power of love and trust functions as a greater whole, a bonded, integrated unit or team that shares the same values, principles, motives, and methods. In a holy marriage, each person rejoices in the advancement and success of the, of, of the other person and celebrates every opportunity to invest in the welfare of their partner. It is a mutually rewarding circle of beneficence in which love flows freely from heart to heart. In such a loving union, the two individuals expand ennoble, develop, and elevate beyond that which either person could, would be able to experience or achieve on their own. It is this unity of love that people flourish and become truly godlike, and over time, their love grows, deepens, and strengthens even further. What do you think so far? Okay, now. It's really pretty, isn't it? Pretty images? Next thing says... But a healthy marriage requires healthy people. One cannot have a healthy marriage with a cheat or someone who is abusive, domineering, controlling, and exploitive. Amen. Isn't that true? Yes. And Christ cannot have a healthy marriage with cheats. He has to heal his people so that he, we can be united in bonds of eternal love and unity with him. He has to cleanse us. That's what this is about. So we've got these, and it's about the, when you, if you like the term investigative judgment, you can use that terminology, but this comes at it through the lesson of the Old Testament feast days, which were acted out on an annual cycle from Passover to Tabernacles, and all seven of them taught the plan of salvation from Adam's fall, God passed over, left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And I won't go through all the details of all of them, but then at one meant the two becoming one, united in the bonds of matrimony, followed by tabernacle. We tabernacle or dwell with God again in an earth made new. And that's the whole plan. And we are in the atonement or at one minute or healing cleansing phase of human history where God is preparing his people to, to meet him. So these are here. Hope you will take and share them. But that's the second judgment. Third judgment is the judgment that the righteous rendered during the thousand years. I saw thrones which were seated and those be given authority to judge. This is where we review the history of all those who are not there. And we have an understanding as to God's actions and what God did and how he did everything for every person possible and why they're lost. <laughs> it's also where we judge the angels. 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Don't you know that we will judge angels? We will evaluate what the angels have done, why, why the, the angels are fallen and what they did in heaven. So this is a settling in the hearts and minds of the righteous, all the questions that they have. And then the fourth judgment... The fourth judgment, I saw a great white throne, and him was seated on the throne, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according 
to what they had done in the record books. Certainly, this must be judicial, right? I mean, it's, it's plain. If you make it anything else, you're twisting scripture, man. This is, this is what you'll hear. That's because they have a bias when they go. They already assume God's law works like human law. And they don't actually interpret the symbolic language of the text. Because it says they will be judged out of the things recorded in the books. What books? The book of life. The Lamb's book of life. And what's recorded according to Scripture in multiple places? Philippians 4.3, Revelation 3.5, Revelation 13.8, Revelation 17.8, Revelation 20.15, Revelation 21.27. Multiple places tell you what is recorded in the book. The names of people are recorded in the book. And in Bible imagery, name is symbolic of character. Your character, your individuality is recorded in the books and you will be judged by what's recorded there. In other words, if you want to use a metaphor, these books simply stand as medical records. If you want to use that metaphor. Those, and so if you think about this, the example of medical records, somebody with a terminal condition, the records will have an accurate MRIs, labs, everything showing all the disease. And, and those who partake in the remedy and the cancer's gone into remission will show they predict the remedy and the records will still show that, in fact, the cancer's gone. But, but you don't heal a person by do- adjusting documentation in the record. You see, the legal approach would have this. You have a child and your child has been struggling with some terminal disease, maybe leukemia, and all the doctors you know say there's no hope, they don't have any treatment, but you hear a doctor out in Loma Linda who anybody who goes to this doctor leaves with a clean bill of health so you fly out, you have your child, you have your records, you hand them to the doctor. The doctor opens it up and sees all the pathology reports, sees the scan, sees the bone marrow biopsy, sees it all. And as, and as you're sitting there, he, he opens up the record, removes all of that, sticks in clean, blank, white sheets of paper, hands it back and says, look, no more record of disease. Are you happy? No. That's traditional Adventist investigative judgment. God's in heaven, opening record books and removing records of sin and sticking in the perfection of Jesus into the record. It's a, it's a con job. It's a fraud. No. What he's actually doing is he's working in the hearts of people. So you go to the doctor. The doctor sees the record. Yep, sure enough. But then the doctor does not manipulate the record. The doctor goes over to your child and intervenes in your child with a remedy that puts the cancer into remission. And the records show they tar- took the remedy. And the records will be updated to show the child's cancer-free because the child is cancer-free. That's the true gospel message, that God works in the hearts of mind, gives you a new heart and right spirit, writes the law in your heart and mind, circumcises our heart by the spirit, takes out the heart of stone, puts in the heart of flesh. We're reborn, recreated, have the mind of Christ. All the metaphors are the same that God is wanting to heal us. It's not a legal problem. It's an actual transformation, regeneration, renewal. That's That's the message. We become like Job who though trial or tribulation comes and we may not understand, we may have questions. It doesn't make sense. I know I didn't bring this on myself like Job, but we will be able to say like Job, even though I don't understand, I have no idea why. I know God well enough that even if he were to slay me, I'd still trust him. That's what God is, and that's Bible perfection. Be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. God is perfectly loyal, perfectly reliable, perfectly trustworthy, perfectly our friend, and that's what he wants from us. It's not about task performance. It's about being settled into our loyalty to him that we won't break it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel. There are many people through history that achieved this level of, of loyalty to God that even when their life was on the line, they wouldn't betray it. And that's what the end time people will get. That's what we get when we make the right judgment about God. And this is what the, the final great white throne judgment is. It is simply an opening of reality. The records of the hearts and minds of people are what they are. So he who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is wicked, let them be wicked still. Does God's judgment determine the condition of the heart and mind? It simply confirms it. That's all. It doesn't, make the, it doesn't make the determination. It simply accurately diagnoses what is. And Jesus uh, made, made this point clear in Matthew 12, 33 through 37. 
Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. The tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings forth the evil of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will give account on the day of judgment for every careless word you have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and your words you will be condemned. Why? Because the words are an expression of the condition of the heart. And who determines the condition of the heart? We do by what? By our judgment to trust God or harden the heart. We trust God, open the heart, we get a new heart and right spirit. And our hearts change and therefore our words change. We who were like John and James and John, the sons of thunder, become the beloved disciples. We're changed. So does changing your character or God changing character, does it ever change personality as well? So in my view, no. Personality be things like uh, a person who loves... um, Uh, activities outside, or a person who loves uh, detailed crossword puzzles and reading books, okay? The the character would be honest, loyal, faithful, kind, true, generous. This is character. What about somebody with multiple personalities? Like, you know, I don't need to go too deep, but I'm just saying that... Everybody hearing the questions? Yes. Okay. So what about somebody with multiple personality? If they come to Jesus, then it's a multiple per- there is no actual multiple personalities. Okay? In a multiple personality disorder, there is one individual who has, through trauma, fragmented their different aspects of their individual self, and they have allowed different alters to be uh, to process some of life's experience, and they, through a coping strategy... Um, are viewed sometimes as having, but it's still the one person. I've dealt with multiple personalities. And so every person in this room has multiple aspects to themselves. You have your professional self that you put on when you're in front of your employees or your peers. You have your playful self when you're with your spouse, maybe, or, or your romantic self, okay? You have the, the maybe the little um, more playful self when you're with your grandchildren, okay? You can have your authoritarian self if you've got to discipline, uh, you have your aggressive, hostile, I'm going to take you down to, the, to whatever self when somebody tries to kidnap your kid. Don't there, is, there is a fighter that comes out. <laughs> the fighter was always there. It's not a different person. All these aspects are part of who you are. Multiple personality just takes these various aspects that we all have and allows memories to be isolated into the different aspects without them all integrating. And the treatment is that they're one person and they just bring them all back into integration. And the reason is the trauma is too painful so they try to house the trauma away from other parts of themselves. That's all. Okay? So when they come to Christ, they heal all that. That's healed. And they become honest, loyal, faithful, true, kind. So personality and character are not the same. But if you feel more pleasant and calmer because you have love and glory in your heart and it's changed, your personality might reflect that. So, so it, I guess it depends on how we're defining the word personality. Okay, I would say what you're describing is not personality. What you guys are trying to suggest through personality is more what we might call your spirit. You have a gentle spirit, a kind attitude. You have a critical spirit or critical attitude. You're negative. You're a rain. You're a rainy. Uh, you're a rain cloud on a sunny day. Okay, okay. These aren't really personalities, as I said. These are attitudinal elements that people bring because of stuff in them that they haven't worked out. Yes, uh, I don't really describe personally that as personality, but it, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So. How I paraphrased in 2 Corinthians 5.10 about the, the, our memory verse for, for this week. We will all appear in Christ's examining room so that each one may be accurately diagnosed and receive what their condition warrants, whether from compliance or not compliance with God's treatment plan. And then I, I, I have a bunch of stuff uh, I want to go through, but we're going to skip all of uh, Monday's lesson. We're going to skip Tuesday's lesson, which is about the millennial judgment. We're going to look at Wednesday's lesson, and I'm going to have to address a little bit out of Wednesday's lesson. Listen to this now. After all we said, put your thinking cap on. We're going to read the first two paragraphs out of Wednesday's lesson. During the Middle Ages, there was a strong tendency to portray God as severe 
as a severe punitive judge. Today, the tendencies describe him as a loving, permissive father who never punishes his children. Yet, love without justice will turn into chaos and lawlessness, and justice without love will become oppressive and, su- and subjugation, oppression and subjugation. God's judging process is a perfect blend of justice and mercy, mercy, both of which derive from his unconditional love. The executive judgment is God's final and irreversible punitive intervention in human history. Limited punitive judgments occurred, for example, in the casting out of Satan and his rebellious angels from heaven, the driving out of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, the great flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the death of the firstborn of Egypt, and the death of Ananias and Sapphira. So it is no surprise that there will be an executive judgment of the wicked also at the end of human history. I grieved when I read that. Hugely sad. And I'm going to tell you it's diagnostic. We just read, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This reveals the mindset of the people who publish this. And I'm going to say this very strongly. You want to know why we're still wandering the wilderness of this world? Because of this. In order for the second coming to occur, the people of God need to experience the latter rain. The latter rain, remember the... The, the, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out to spread the gospel initially, and it didn't spread by human might. They were empowered by God to move that message quickly around, and it did. And then the counterattack came. And before Christ comes, there will be a second outpouring. Joel talks about this, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Will God pour out his spirit to divinely empower people to lie about him? No, no. That's why the Holy Spirit hasn't been poured out, because this is a fraud, and this is a lie. This is Satan's version. This is based on human law. You Remember, we already talked in class today. Did you see all these Old Testament examples they just gave? Every single one of them is first death experience. Every single one of them happened before judgment. None of them can actually be punitive justice to punish sin. They will claim it. But it's not so. For instance, God acting on the firstborn of Egypt. Why did those children and animals die? Because they were wicked? Those were wicked animals. Those animals were doing some bad sin. That's why they had to die. Because they were firstborn. Well, why did the firstborn uh, get, get identified? Why not the second or thirdborn? Because every one of the ten plagues in Egypt were eviscerations and demonstrations of the... Um, fraudulence of all their gods. Every single one. And it says right in the scripture, these were attacks to show that the Egyptian gods are not God. Every one. And the last one, Anubis, god of death. And they, they, they worshipped the god of death and they believed they had power over death. And it was the firstborn who was divine, very much like the Roman Caesars came to think they were divine. And so the firstborn had the power of life and death in their Theology. And God showed no. You don't. This was not punitive. This was not vengeful. This was loving, mercy, therapeutically acting. And it worked. There was a great multitude that rejected the Egyptian gods called the mixed multitude that left. Now, not all of them came out because they now trusted God. Because you actually can't get love and trust by using power like this. Yeah, and that's right, because you incite fear. So what did God get by using power? And look through the Old Testament. He did it over and over again. He did it here. He did it at the Red Sea. Did it at Sinai. Did it at Mount Carmel. Did it at that Tower of Babel. Many places God uses might and power. Is there any place you can point to when he did it, he got love and trust and loyalty and friendship and perpetual devotion? No, what he got is he got a reduction in chaos. They stopped having an orgy around a golden calf when he thundered at Sinai. That's what he got. And they started to listen. But he didn't get love and trust. And in fact, every time he used might and power, he just stopped for a brief period of time some of the chaos that was happening, some of the rebellion that was ongoing, the hardening, which gave opportunity for 
not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. For the Spirit, the gentle, quiet whisper of the Spirit to work in the heart and mind without threat or coercion, to lead us to understand a new way, to choose in love the truth and be transformed. And throughout the Old Testament, you will find individuals who, who did this. But the vast majority and that the mixed multitude wasn't too long. That mixed multitude was, was urging Aaron to build the golden calf. That mixed multitude was begging for quail. That mixed multitude was constantly griping and grumbling because they were not converted to love and trust. They just realized he had more power and, and you better get on the side of the one with the power or you might be the one that's nailed next. That's exactly what power does. So they make this argument that God uses uh, power. They actually quote one of the founders of the Adventist church, lifted a quote right out of context and trying to make the, uh, make the point. But I will tell you this view of God has to punish sin. This is what the book Desire of Ages says, page 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. Do you understand our quarterly just made this same argument? Satan's version of God being, and you want to know why we're wandering. You want to know why the church is stuck. Why did the children of Israel wander in the wilderness for 40 years? Did they wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they were not called by God? No, they were called by God. And I think the Adventist church has been called and blessed with a message. This is nothing to repute that. What it has to do is that they wandered because they did not embrace the message that God had from more practices, principles. And I think this organization has embraced this very lie that Satan told from the beginning and is taking a fraudulent version of an imperial dictator, Roman God, to the world just with the better set of rules. But if you don't keep his rules, you don't worship on the right day, you don't believe the right thing about the state of the dead, you don't baptize in the right way, then if you don't get all that taken care of, and of course you don't get your sins going before end of the judgment for the heavenly high priest to erase out of the books, then God is required by law and justice to use his power to torture you the appropriate length of time before he kills you. And that is, that is exactly the Roman view, just with a different set of rules. We have a better message, folks, a way better message, a blessed message that wins hearts and minds. And, we, and it's the truth about God's character of love, that he is the creator, his laws are design laws, sin severs the connection with the source of life, results in ruin and death, just as it says in Scripture. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. I've got some more I wanted to share, but I've already gone over, so we'll close with prayer, and then we will do our Q&A time. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are the creator and your laws are an expression of your character of love and, and they are the protocols that all reality operate upon and you are not like a Roman dictator. You are not the source of pain, suffering, and death, but you're the source of life. We ask that you will pour your spirit out, free our hearts and minds from the confusion, the distortion, the, the long-standing, conditioned educations that many of us have had, that we can break free of those, those ties that bind and, and, and be reestablished in, into the kingdom of, uh, into your kingdom and be effective in, in taking this final message of mercy so the Spirit can be poured out and we can be empowered and that we can see you face-to-face very soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.